everybody. Welcome to another episode of the World of Wellness podcast. I'm a grateful host, Megan Wren. So happy to be here as always. Today, we have a special guest on the podcast, Dr. Dalton Combs. And Dalton is a neuroscientist in economics, and he is the founder of the app called Temper, which helps you um, create habits around fasting to increase your metabolic fitness. So we'll talk a lot about fasting. We'll talk a lot about metabolic fitness, and then we'll also talk a lot about habit changes and what that means, how to create changes and the chemistry that happens in the body when it comes to sugar in our brain and dopamine. So I think you'll find a lot of uh, value in this podcast. So without further ado, here is Dalton. All right, Dalton, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Would you mind starting by introducing yourself for our listeners? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. So uh, my name is Dalton Combs. Uh, I've got a PhD in neuroscience and economics that I got at USC studying uh, how people make decisions, especially decisions around food. Uh, I wrote a book called Digital Behavior Design to help uh, both app developers and app users be more aware of how technology can influence our behaviors. And now I'm the CEO of a company called Temper, where we help people pick up and stick to an intermittent fasting practice using the exact same technologies that we talked about in the book. Interesting. What got you, what made you want to study neuroscience? I think neuroscience is amazing, but what got you excited about it? Yeah, um, the deep stuff that I found really fascinating was like, what, what am I, right? Like, who am I? What am I? What does it mean to be alive? What is consciousness? Uh, where did we come from? Like, where, where did our minds come from? That, that sense of self. Those were like the, the big questions that kept me up at night. Uh, and then the, the details of like, so what can we do with that? Like, how can we direct who we are and how can we change who we are? And that's why I ended up in neuroeconomics because the economists are very interested in behavior change and what can actually influence uh, our behavior but yeah so both both of those things are what drew me in uh is freakonomics talk a lot about that yeah so freakonomics they talk a lot a lot about uh fast and slow right system one versus system two uh and understanding how we really make decisions and how we're not like what the normal economic models say we are um, I just thought of Freakonomics because I like I remember them talking about like the behavior of how consumers purchase. So what got you, what got you interested in in that part of it of the neuroscience? The immediate applicability of it. So you know it's it's brand new science, right? Fresh out of the lab, but it's also immediately useful. So at, at Temper, we focus on uh, these health decisions that people make. You know, we know we don't need a breakthrough drug to get everyone to live to ninety it's we know that by changing people's behavior we can get everyone there and it's relatively small behavior changes and that's fascinating to me that like why are we not there like why is not everyone living to 90 let's go do that so that's the the goal of temper is to help everyone achieve those small behavior changes that can you know from that neuroscience that can give you the metabolism uh that everyone wants, right? The, the, the Freakonomics folks tend to focus on the financial decisions, right? Like yes. saving enough for retirement. You know, I wanna help people 
first save enough for retirement and then totally blow through it because they're living to a hundred and like now they're out of retirement, like that's their biggest problem. <laughs> so how, what are, how do we get to live to 90? Like what are some behavior changes that you see that we need to make like on a big scale? Yeah. So the, the biggest thing that is shortening people's lives today, there's, there's two big things that are shortening, let's say Americans lives. One is opioid addiction and then the other is snacking and they have about the same order of magnitude effect on people snacking 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 people in like the 60s 50s 60s snacking was not a thing people only had meals so this is like one of the big changes in our relationship with food that's happened over the last 50 years is snacking is normal now and even doctors recommend oh you know snack throughout the day so that you keep your hunger under control which like there's no scientific basis for that recommendation, uh, but it's you know, radically changed our relationship uh, with food. And it's one of the behaviors that um, is incredibly destructive to our metabolism. So the metabolism is all of those little chemical reactions that are going on inside your body all the time to keep you alive. And when your metabolism is well-tuned, you have high energy during the day, it's easy to go to bed at night, uh, your body is recycling burnt out proteins efficiently. Everything's going great. Um, and when your metabolism is not well tuned, all of that kind of starts to fall apart. You get groggy and sleepy at three in the afternoon. You're up all night tossing and turning. You've got proteins building up where they shouldn't be. You've got fats building up where they shouldn't be. Um, and yeah, snacking is the number one thing that sort of pushed the American metabolism more out of tune in the last 50 years. So what does snacking do to our metabolism that wrecks it? It's a, it's a great question. Uh, so our metabolism has a number of different modes that it can be in, sort of like operating modes. Uh, and if you're snacking, your body is always in this digest the food, take the food, store the food mode. And it's never in the unlock the food, tap the reserves, recycle mode. And those deeper metabolic states on our website, we have uh, uh, infographic to show people all these different metabolic modes that they can, that their body can move through. Uh, and if you're always in those fed, lock up the food, store it modes, your body's never accessing these recycling modes. Um, that it needs to occasionally access in order to be healthy. It's like wearing a cast, right? You're just never exercising that part of your metabolism. Well, speaking of exercise, how does not exercising or exercise influence the metabolism and snacking? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, exercise can help get you into those deeper metabolic modes faster because it burns a little bit more energy. Um, it you know, exercising doesn't burn as much energy as people tend to think. Like you burn like a one cheeseburger running a marathon. Like it's a very small amount of energy that you actually burn while exercising, but it's still really helpful um, for the damage signals. So when you go on a run all over your body, you get little itty bits of damage all over the place. I'm not talking about like bad knees, but just like very small part of your bone realizes, oh, I need to be stronger. And one small part of your muscle says, oh, I need to be stronger. 
and some other part of your body says, oh, I don't need to be as strong. And all those little damage signals, both physical and chemical all over the place uh, are very helpful for putting your body into uh, recycling mode. So basically when we're, okay, well, what, what does recycling mode mean? So the technical term is autophagy. And this is uh, your body's, all the cells in your body are building proteins all the time. Everything that your cells do, they do through proteins, breaking food down, uh, building up bones and muscles, uh, neurons connecting in your brain, all of that is mediated by proteins. But the proteins wear out and your body has a garbage collection system. And then everything just kind of sits in these garbage collectors uh, until it's until your metabolism switches into recycling mode. And then your body goes very aggressively to break all that stuff down uh, and actually recycle it as opposed to just it piling up in the recycling center. Uh, it's called the lysosomes are the recycling centers. Uh, and yeah, so that's what that recycling mode is about. And those proteins, if they build up too much, uh, that's a big part of where Alzheimer's disease and neurodegenerative diseases come from is the buildup of these excessive proteins. It's also an important part of how heart disease forms. Uh, and it's an important part of kidney disease is the excessive buildup of these proteins in the wrong places as opposed to having them uh, get fully recycled. So on some level, I don't want to reduce it again completely, but on some level, it sounds like the exercise is not quite as important as the way that you are eating and how much you are eating. It really is. Like for, for this kind of metabolism, for putting your body into recycling mode, it's yeah. really when you eat. Um, what you eat has an influence, uh, but when and how often is the most important thing here. So for people who want to move, and that's why we picked intermittent fasting as the thing at Temper to help people uh, learn about and help people adopt as a behavior. Because occasional intermittent fasting is, for the vast majority of people, the number one thing that they can do to improve their metabolic fitness. Uh, and it's because that break from food gives your metabolism the time to go into that recycling mode. So is there like a, are there different intermass, intermittent fasting protocols? Because like the most common one that I've heard is like the 16, eight, but like, I've mm -hmm. also done like a 24 hour or 48 hour fast. And I think that's kind of a form of intermittent fasting. So you're not doing it all the time. So yep. We talk a little bit more about that <laughs> yeah absolutely uh so 16 8 18 6 those sort of like daily schedules yeah. um, are a great place for people to start and a lot of people see a huge amount of benefit from uh those styles of fasting i think that there are benefits to something like a 48 hour or 72 hour fast that you really don't get from the 16 to 18 hour fasts uh it's very much like a once a year twice a year kind of thing, but those longer fasts, uh, the both the human and the animal research says that those have a benefit that you can't get from the other styles of fasting. It's not, no one should jump into a 72 hour fast. Uh, just like, you know, you just finished your Starbucks mochaccino and now you're gonna start a 72 hour fast, like that would be a bad time. Uh, but it is something that I think has benefits that um, people can work up to. So what with, with, uh, how does temper work? I guess. 
Yeah, so Temper uh, is a program that helps people pick up and stick to an intermittent fasting plan. Um, intermittent fasting can be very intimidating. And, and one level, it's incredibly simple, right? It's like, don't eat. But as we just discussed, like there's so many different ways to fast. And depending on what benefit it is that people are looking for from their fasting practice and their current lifestyle, uh, it can take a lot to find an intermittent fasting style that fits into your lifestyle and gets the you know helps you achieve the goals that you've set for yourself and it's something you can actually stick to and so that's what the coaches at temper do is they walk people through a number of different uh exercises and fasting styles to learn what how their body responds to hunger cues and learn how to relate to their hunger cues and then by the end of the program the goal is to have established an intermittent fasting practice that will be easy to stick to um how how long is the program? Uh, most people, the program is eight weeks. Some people do a 16-week program, uh, but for most people, it's an eight-week program. And so can you just tell me more about how it works? Like, like a, there's somebody like talking with somebody or are they just doing it all on the app or like, how does it? Yep. So inside the app, you can text with and you do a video call with um, your coach. And that, you know, that first call is just about getting to know each other uh, and learning about your goals and your lifestyle. And then we start going through uh, some of the practices. And so one of the big practices that we do is uh, learning how to feel your hunger. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of different things that can drive people to eat. Um, and hunger is only one of them. Uh, and so, learning you know when you're going to eat listening to your body and hearing what sensations you feel where you feel them what they feel like i uh, can help you identify your hunger because so many people are out of touch with their hunger and don't really remember what their hunger feels like uh and so that's one of our practices and then the other is listening to how your body responds to food so after a meal learning how to pause a few, you know, one to three hours after a meal and listening to how your body has reacted to the food. We never do, we don't track macros. Uh, we don't have uh, like no-no foods. Um, what we focus on is, uh, yeah, helping people hear their hunger and helping people hear their fullness. And then that, that's the first like month of the program and sometimes longer is just that. It's just listening to what your body is asking for, and then listening to how it responds when you give it to it. I'm curious as how much, three things. One, how much hydration plays a role in people feeling hungry. Two, the emotional aspect of people feeling hungry. And three, how um, habitual food can just be. We might think that we're hungry, but we might not actually be just because it's like a timing thing. Absolutely, absolutely. So although those are the top ways in which people, those are the top things people confuse for hunger. Um, so yeah, being thirsty. And there's also this phenomenon of salt hunger mm. where you're not hungry for food, but your body is craving electrolytes. Uh, and so learning to hear both of those um, can you know help a lot of people learn how to hear their thirst different from their hunger.
And then with emotional eating and habitual eating, yeah, so habitual is a huge one, right? Where uh, people will eat in the morning because they always eat in the morning or they'll, they go, as, you know, they, they do the drive-through, the Starbucks drive-through every morning on the way to work. And even if they're not hungry, it's just part of their morning ritual. And then emotional eating, again, is about these cues in our life that the, you know, the sensation of satiety and fullness and the, the sense of control of like being able to self-soothe is like very powerful. Uh, and some people have connected from different life, from their life experience, that tool of self-soothing to certain painful emotions. Um, but it's not hunger, right? That's not what's causing them to eat. And so that is something that a lot of people work through with their coach is like, okay, you're gonna, like, you want to eat, right? You feel, you close your eyes and you hear the thoughts running through your head and they're about food. Um, but you don't feel anything in your stomach. You don't feel anything in your back. You don't feel these like sensations of hunger. Like, let's talk about what that is. Yeah. And then the, this, because the the next thing that we do are like the solutions to these. So like when you have something that's driving you towards food, that's not hunger, right? Maybe it's thirst, maybe it's routine, maybe it's an emotional experience. Then, and these are the, this, the, the big part of where we pull in the neuroscience is uh, how do we find substitute behaviors? So let's make a plan for what you would like to do when you feel thirsty as opposed to eating. Or let's make a plan for what you would like to do differently about your morning routine when you're not actually feeling hunger. Uh, and then the next month to two is working with the coach to implement and stick to uh, those behavior changes. So a lot of this sounds like becoming more in tune with your body. And I think that that's a hard thing for people to do sometimes because we have all of these external distractions of like, oh, I can watch something. I can like call a friend. I can talk. I can scroll social media. So like, is there any like techniques that you teach for people to like break away from those things to then be able to go inside? Yeah. Yeah, there is. And you're totally right that the program is centered on teaching people and working with people to get more in touch with their body. I think when people hear, I imagine a lot of your audience when they heard like, oh, a neuroscientist economist is going to tell me (laughs) how to rework my diet. I'm sure it's going to be very prescriptive and it's going to be very regimented and he thinks he knows what's best for me. And like, that is the last thing that the science says is like that is that is the wrong answer according to the science you know people think oh the science says don't eat eggs or whatever like that's the conclusion they expect to hear from science but the real conclusion from science is that no one can tell you what is right for you like at a very fundamental level you have to figure it out for yourself and we can help you figure it out but the science says you have to figure it out for yourself so what are the practices that we do to help people turn away from those distractions? So again, some people are surprised to hear that we have a mobile app 
designed to help people turn away from distraction because your phone is not the first thing you think of when you think right. about turning away from distraction. Um, and so the relationship that you build with the coach and um, the reminders that come in through the app and the, pro the program that the app walks you through uh, is designed to create these breaks in your day at the right moment. Like you don't need to spend all days end out to get the benefits of this, but you should spend a couple minutes, about two hours after dinner, listening to your body about how it reacted to uh, the meal. You should spend 20 seconds before you get, or after you get in the car, but before you start it and listen to if your body is hungry before you start your commute. And what I did there about like, after you get in the car, but before you start it, things like that are really important. Finding those really, being extremely specific about uh, when and under what circumstances you're gonna enact this practice of like phone down, this is 20 seconds, just close your eyes. And we talk about all the parts of your body to check and to assess like, how do I feel? And like, what do I hear my body asking for? And it's, at first it's a guess, right? If, you, if you're out of touch with how your body, if you're, if you're out of touch with your body's language, you're not gonna hear it right the first time, but you, know, you should listen. And then you make a guess about what you heard. And then a little bit later you check in and see how your body is reacting to what you gave it and see if like, does, does this feel like it got what it was asking for or did I mishear it or, and then again, again, again. Do you think that when we eat poorly, and I don't know, I know you don't like necessarily like this is what you should eat, yeah, but like, do yeah. you think that our body tells us when there's like, like, I mean, we know there's good food and bad food, right? And like, people are going to respond better to like chicken or fish, or some people might respond better to eating like, you know, pork or something like that. Like, like, um, did you get the yeah. question I'm asking? I do, I, I do get the okay. question. It's a di it, I, I understand the difficulty you're having because it's a hard question to put into words, right? Because the like, like we're not going to talk judgmentally about food, but at another level, we know I shouldn't start the day with a dozen donuts, right? right. We know like at some level that's not nourishing. Um, so yes, your body will give you the signals. Um, your body will tell you everything you need to know about whether or not that meal, that experience gave you what it was asking for. Um, birthday cake at your kid's birthday is an incredibly nourishing experience, right? I was at a wedding this weekend and the wedding cake, not something I would want to start every day with because my I know how my body would react to that if I had that first thing in the morning every day, but the experience of having it there at the wedding was an incredibly nourishing experience. And it wasn't about the nutrient content, right? Food is not just a nutrient delivery system. Right. Food is also like, it's has social components and it has emotional components and your body will tell you whether or not your, your food and your eating experience is what it was asking for, right? It will tell you if it was a satisfying, nurturing, nourishing experience. Is there a way like before people eat that you ever teach them of like, what does my body actually want? Like what kind of food is my body craving? What kind of nutrients does it, you know what I'm saying? So like, sometimes people are just like, oh, I'm craving protein or, oh, I'm craving a bunch of vegetables. 
like do you teach people to kind of think of that before they go to make a meal yes and I can't tell you what it's going to sound like when your body asks for vegetables yeah. but if you listen listen really carefully and just listen to your body and then you go eat some vegetables you can check back in and say like is that what you were asking for and it'll let you know right and eventually you can learn the language it's it it's like learning a foreign language right you're not going to get it the first time but you will learn these subtle cues and you'll learn it's a language that only you and your body speak to each other like it's not a language you can translate and teach to someone else but it's a language that, that you can learn for yourself and you can learn like okay body does broccoli sound good right now does that no okay great what about and like you can you, you can learn to have that conversation before a meal and it, 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 you only learn how to have it before the meal because you've had it after the meal a hundred times. Mm. So you, you start by doing it after to become in tune and then you move into doing it beforehand to see what it wants. Yeah. Have you ever done muscle testing to like see if that's what the body wants at all? Have you ever heard of that? This is like, like you like hold the vial of the thing and yeah. push and pull. I haven't. I haven't. I know some people who swear by it. Yeah. Um, It'd be interesting to see someone implement that in an app, yeah. um, like send people a hundred little vials of samples. Um, I'd be, I've never tried it. Have you tried it? I've done it where um, there's two things that I've done is like a, like using your finger, like, like a pushing down, like, is the sky orange? Then your body will say no. If it goes down, is the sky blue? And then like your body's stronger saying yes or no. Okay. So like, I've been really trying to like feel yeses and nos in my body with like energy going up or energy going down for a no and up for a yes. Mm -hmm. But if that's not like fully like on, if I'm not getting a strong signal, I'll do this. Be like, do you want broccoli right now? Do you want sweet potato? No. Okay. <laughs> you know, like that's. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, I put a lot of stake in the, um, these like languages, like structures for intuition uh like we use tarot cards at work uh not because we think the cards are magical and know something that we don't but because they provide a spontaneity and a structure for a conversation that like the conversation is better for having that that spontaneity and that structure uh and so i think there definitely are these sort of intuition tools and intuitive wisdom tools uh, like the muscle reactions you're talking about that can help put people in touch with uh, with their intuition. Do you think that if people are used to eating incredibly poorly that they're, do you think that the, sometimes the signals could be blocked because they're just so used to having bad things being pumped in their body that they can't actually feel what their body wants? I wouldn't ever want to tell someone that their experience of their body is not authentic. Mm. Um, and again, I'm not accusing you of saying that, but like if, if, a, if, if one of our clients like asked this, they said like, my body really wants cake, but I feel like it must be wrong. Like, give your body what you think it's asking for check in, right? Make sure you are actually like hearing, listening yeah. and then give it what you think it's asking for and see how you react. A lot of people have, have learned 
to like misreact to signals because they don't do this check-in afterwards. So like, and this is common in a lot of, um, I mean, snacking in general, but like binge eating yeah. where people have a lot of shame connected with it because when they, when they have a snack and then they feel ashamed afterwards, they, they haven't learned if the snack was actually what they needed. Right. But if you ask your body, like, did that feel good? Like I'm doing this and I'm naughty because like I'm giving in to temptation. Often people will find when they start listening to how their body reacts to these things, that they're not even enjoying it. Right. That they're, that, and there's no need to feel ashamed of that. That's just something to learn about yourself that you have a Coke because it's, what you've learned is how that's how you've learned to react to thirst and then you check in an hour later and like you don't you still feel just as thirsty and you feel like um like your 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 hands feel heavy like okay well that didn't work but that process of checking in like connects that experience you're having back to the decision you made whereas if you didn't check in you wouldn't have learned that about yourself so on it's not intellectual it has to be experiential like that's that's the thing i'm trying to hammer on here is like like um i think there's almost never a situation in which uh like a liter of coke is the solution right there's almost no problem to which a liter of coca-cola is the solution but it's not enough to intellectually know that like you have to learn it experientially for yourself that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense because most people be like, well, I know I shouldn't be eating this and I know I shouldn't be eating this, but they do it yeah. anyway. But then that's probably because they're not actually going in and seeing how it feels afterwards. They're just kind of going with it because it probably the like dopamine spike you get from eating something that you really like. <laughs> yeah. And then they tune out, right? So they get that like, ooh, that tasted good. The first second I hit my tongue, I enjoyed that. An hour later, I'm feeling gross and I don't connect that like bodily sensation back to my decision. I love this. You seem like you're vibing. You seem like you're vibing. Well, yeah. And and that's like, that's what part, part of what I do is teach people how to like feel their subtle energy with music and movement, because I think it's so important to be able to like, you can, and I just, what I love about you saying, like you can literally feel if you quiet yourself enough, you can feel your heartbeat and your blood flow. You can feel where your muscles are tight, like where you've got stagnancy in your body. So I, I think it's awesome. So with temper, do you have people like put into the app when they eat? So then they get a reminder of like, exactly. Hey, check in. Exactly. Hey, oh. it's time to check in. Let them, yeah. then let's log your reaction. Like, okay, it's two hours later. Let's check in. Like, how did that feel? And then the, the coaches can see all that and they can leave comments about, Hey, try this next time. Um, or would you say it felt more like this or more like that if they want people to like dig in on their experience a little more? Yeah. Does, um, does having some kind of mindfulness practice play a role into the awareness of your body besides just checking in? I mean, I, I think it can absolutely help. Um, part of our goal is to 
cut back the program to the absolute minimum mm-hmm. uh, in order to like just to be respectful of our clients' time. And yeah. like we, we, we try to be as simple and do as little work as possible. If our clients like have a background in mindfulness or are doing that kind of practice in addition, uh, I'm certain it would make what we're doing like it would they'd be rowing in the same direction. Yeah. So what, what, generally speaking, who are the type of people who use your app? Are they like, uh, yeah, can we? It's all over the place. It's all over the place. It's all over the place. Like high performers, people who have struggled with weight their whole life, women who are going through menopause and like living through these changes where their appetite feels like something they never felt before um people who are just aging in general and and feeling their appetite change and not knowing what to do about that um yeah all over the place I think it's amazing (laughs) (laughs) um is there is the what do you think is the most common is, is there like a most common um fasting protocol yeah yeah I mean the 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 one that surprised me um, that is extremely common um, is night snacking. So people like eating right before bed and like wanting to not do that, but still doing it or getting up in the middle of the night and having a snack and wanting to stop doing that. That one has been, it has been very common. And that's usually the first thing we start with. If like, if clients express that as like something they want to change, like before we think about skipping like working on afternoon snacks or skipping breakfast or skipping lunch we start with this like um the relationship like where food fits into your uh bedtime routine and your evening routine and its relationship with your sleep um because people see such a big improvement in so many areas when they get that right and so people express that problem like that's where we start um because like snacks right before bed they really disrupt your sleep right. uh you you sleep your your sleep quality is much much lower it's harder to wake up in the morning you have high blood sugar all night like if you have a snack within a couple hours of going to bed you're gonna have high blood sugar all night like if you if you have a snack in the afternoon your blood sugar will be down like back to baseline within a couple hours usually now you have that same snack like an hour before bed you're gonna have high blood sugar all night and like your your metabolism is going to be all out of whack the whole next day. Generally speaking, how often should we stop eating before we go to sleep? Three hours. Three hours. You can put a three hour buffer between finishing your dinner, finishing your last meal, and hitting the pillow. You're in good shape. Okay. Let me. Um. And is that just so like your blood sugar regulates so that your body can then relax to go to sleep? Yeah. So you have time to finish digesting. Yeah. Um, and your body is like, your stomach has digested, your stomach and intestines have released all the food into your blood. And then your liver and your muscles have had time to pull those nutrients out of your blood. And then you go to bed. Interesting. How long does it typically take for us to digest? Is it three hours that it takes to digest a meal? Yeah, to get it to like, um, let's say yes, to feel like your stomach will have cleared by that point, um, and 
things will mostly have been be out of your intestines and into your blood. And then mostly out of your blood and into your liver and muscles is, is the, are the main sort of, uh, they're like the shock absorbers yeah. in your blood sugar system. Like when, if you get a blood sugar spike, it's your liver and your muscles that suck that sugar out. And that's one way in which movement is really important because of the way your muscles hold on to sugar. So if you have a sugar spike, your muscles along with your liver, they pull a lot of sugar out of your bloodstream. And no matter how hungry you get, your muscles will never let go of it. It's a one-way street. Like your muscles have no mechanism to release sugar back into your blood. So if you're gonna like, and now they can't absorb any more sugar, right? So like the shock absorbers are gone unless you move enough to burn that sugar on site. And like your arms will not share with your legs. So like a run will not clear the sugar out of your arm muscles. Interesting. Yeah. And so full body movements um, and, and getting every muscle to have enough exercise to kind of run down its personal private sugar storage means that at the next meal, your shock absorber, your sugar shock absorber is going to be working better. The question I want to ask, what's what's the benefit of clearing it out of the muscle? Yeah. And like, what's the, what is the shock? Like, why do we have the shock absorber, I guess? I'm sure. Yeah. So sugar at a big scale, it's very sticky, right? It's also very sticky at a small scale. Uh, and so if you have too much sugar, in your bloodstream, if you have chronically high blood sugar, right? That's called diabetes. Um, but even blood sugar spikes, that very high level of blood sugar, this is there's this sticky stuff floating around in your blood, um, and it sticks to uh, proteins. This and the, this process of the sugar sticking to stuff is called glycation. Uh, so glucose glycation, the adding of sugar to things. Uh, so you get glycated proteins and you get glycated lipids and the surface membranes of your veins and arteries and capillaries become glycated and the um, interstitial fluid, like the lymph in, in your skin, it gets, it gets sticky. And then once it's got the glucose on it, it can't do its normal thing anymore. And those proteins, those are called advanced glycation endpoints. And they're like the worst thing you can have in your body. Because they get stuck to stuff and they're like very hard to, to break down. So this is a big part of how heart disease gets started and how it like develops is these advanced like AGEs, advanced glycation endpoints get stuck. And like, then that's plaque in your arteries and it's plaques in your brain and it's plaques in your kidneys and it's plaques in your livers. And that's what builds up. So if you have a big meal, you want your muscles and your liver to get that sugar out of the bloodstream quickly and stabilize your blood sugar so that you don't have this sticky stuff floating around in your lymph and in your brain and in your blood. So then the, do the muscles then use that sugar in in the muscles to produce energy to do the work that they do? When to they do exercise? movement. 
Exactly. To produce movement. Yeah. And so when you're moving, you're burning that, that on-site sugar reserve. Low intensity, um, like a walk yeah. will do it yeah. for your, for your major leg muscles. Yeah. Um, low intensity stuff, um, high intensity stuff. You start, your liver starts cranking out its own sugar. Your muscles might switch over to burning fats instead of burning the local sugar. But like the low intensity kind of warm up, full body um, stuff is is what uh, cleans out that reserve. And doing uh, that a few hours after a meal so that your blood sugar is already low. Because again, if you're if you're pulling up, if you're burning that blood sugar, if you're burning that sugar in your muscles while your blood sugar is still high, it's just going to keep pulling it out of your bloodstream, which is good. But it's not. It means that you're like they're just continuing to absorb shock. You're not like recharging the shock absorber. Right. Okay, so then um, these are these questions go together. So then why and how does our bodies, wait, two, wait, first question yeah. is why are we addicted to sugar? So like if, if it's not necessarily, why do we keep wanting sugar if it's doing that to our body? Mm-hmm. Just that one, or do you have a? Do you have a I'll ask the other one after you. Okay. <laughs> um. So sugar in whole foods is like very rare. There's not a lot of sugar in a carrot. There's not a lot of sugar even in a tomato or a strawberry. Like not a lot, a lot. Not like you'd get in a can of soda, and it's not very accessible either. It's like mixed in with fiber, so it's kind of slow to absorb. So our body is very alert to it because it has to detect it in pretty small quantities. But we've gotten really good at like engineering it into high quantities and putting it in freaking everything. Um, and then you kind of get numb to it. Like a lot, one thing that a lot of our clients report is when they, when they eat something that's very sugary, tastes delicious. And then two hours later, they're like lethargic and they feel heavy. And so over time, they connect that up and they stop wanting it. And then they notice that things that didn't taste sweet taste sweet now. So carrots start tasting incredibly sweet. Fruit is just like a mind-blowing experience because their uh, set point for how sweet something should be uh, changes. So that like the more sugar you eat, the less sensitive you become to it is is how uh yeah and then then the fact that everyone is just constantly telling you to eat more sugar like snack snack have a sweet snack to get your hunger under control it's crazy is there if people aren't getting enough nutrients to sustain energy do they typically want to crave something like high in sugar to get an energy spike I don't know. I know that people like will definitely start craving high fat foods. Like if we're talking about like, like, um, like people who are in really serious calorie deficit for a long time, uh, they start craving very high fat foods and you see this in animals as well. Yeah. And like, even like infants. So like, this is a, they have observational studies of famines, like the kids, will like this love cod liver oil which tastes absolutely repulsive but like if a kid has recently come out of a famine 
um, stricken area and is like in a refugee camp. Uh, they love high fat foods, high fat, and even like they'll drink cod liver oil. Um, on the topic of fat, why does fat get stored? And mm-hmm. how can we eat to burn fat? Especially like if we're going to go with like, you know, an older woman who like wants to burn fat around her midsection kind of thing. Yeah. 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 Um, and especially with like, it, it gets especially difficult with menopause because the yeah. hormone changes around menopause, like increase hunger and kind of shift the metabolic set point. And you start storing more fat. Um, the main thing is is listening to your body. So intermittent fasting is really helpful for this, uh, for hearing your hunger and like getting in touch with your new hunger. There's no there's no red foods, right? There's no foods you need to um, deprive yourself of. It is just about listening to and retuning. Um, there there are essential fats. There are essential proteins. Uh, there's no such thing as an essential carb but carbs are delicious <laughs> um so yeah it's just about listening to and, and retuning uh your appetite i would say that after uh many of those sorts of clients have been through our program their diets are different in that they are um eating smaller meals especially like and and fewer meals like the the their diet is different in that they've cut out snacking. It's like the number one thing. So is it possible for a woman who's a little bit older to lose belly fat? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um you don't need to, right? I think, you know, it's important to understand your value system and and ask yourself, like, is that something you really like, is that is the belly fat interfering with you living a fulfilling, healthy lifestyle? Um, if so, yeah, you can change that. If not, you do you. I really appreciate a lot of what you're saying is like, like be authentic to yourself and like listen to your body. Like, I think that- It will so- tell you what you need to hear. It will tell you what yeah. you need to hear. I just, I think it's cool because like, you know, you talk to a lot of, I'm not saying a lot, but like there's, there's people out there that will be like, huh? The experts. Yeah. Like got to eat four meals a day, 150 grams of protein, Uh a little bit uh of carbs, but I really like the, um, I like the approach of, I mean, really eating intuitively. Yes. Intuitive eating is a big part of, if, you're, if your audience is familiar with that, if they're not familiar with that, check out those books. They're great. Um, if your audience is familiar with that, that is a big part of our practice. Okay. Um, and what is, what is the book again? Uh, my book or, so there's a book called Intuitive Eating. It's on okay. like fourth edition or whatever. Uh, that's a good book. We're writing that down. <laughs> yeah, it's a good book. What else? What else? <laughs> uh, do you ever reflect on whether your phone is giving you what you're at, your body's asking for? 
Do I reflect on if your phone is giving you what your body's asking for? Yeah, you personally. Like, have you ever, like, sat down and said, like, when you finish with your phone? Like, you do something on your phone and you put your phone down and you check in and say, like, did that nourish me? Oh, no. <laughs> no. It's a good practice. It's a good practice for the same reasons. Um, because I... uh, so much of our relationships with our phone is... It's all about that, like, right? It's like those experiences, yeah. like those peak experiences of like, I got the text message I was waiting for. Right. I got that email I've been waiting for. I unlocked some stars on Candy Crush. It's like those fast experiences right. that dictate most of our relationship with our phone. But learning how to incorporate slow experiences and being mindful of our body's reaction to slow experiences can have that same it doesn't matter if you know it you need to feel it loop that our relationship with food can benefit from it's quite interesting i there was a couple of days or i think it was i don't even know what day this day is thursday but there was i think two days earlier this week where i did not have my phone on me all day and i was just i mean i was probably getting some dopamine hits with like what i was doing on my computer but not having like my phone light up or like have a distraction of like looking at something I went through the day I'm like oh my god like I felt I almost felt like I had more energy because my energy was not going into like what's on Instagram <laughs> or something yeah. like that you know what I mean yeah yeah absolutely absolutely yeah. you only get to make like let's say a hundred decisions a day it sounds like a lot it's not you only get to make a hundred decisions today. Yeah. So your, your, your brain has like this capacity limit of how many decisions it can make, especially like this, the, the slow thoughtful part of your brain mm. can only make so many decisions. And if you spend those on what you're going to have for breakfast, or you spend those on what photos to like on Instagram, like they're gone. You only get to re you only get to reset that number when you go to sleep. So then that would probably make it more challenging to make other healthier choices if we're spending especially late time. in the day, especially late in the day. Um. So you you can we can we talk about that with your uh, digital behavior design book that you wrote? Yeah, absolutely. So the I mean, those are the same principles. Yeah. Um, applied to your relationship with technology so one of the reasons i think people really struggle with night snacking is because their capacity for doing difficult things is like exhausted and they have to all they have left is their immediate habitual responses that that is the that that never gets tired uh doing these quick habitual responses your brain can do those all day all night but if you're, if you've burned through all of your thoughtful choices, then you're not going to, and you don't have any left by 9 PM, you're going to be relying on your habits. And so building up the habits so that they make the decisions. This is one of the things that my uh, PhD advisor kind of built his career on was that you can learn to make the healthy thing habitual. So people think of habits as like, they're always bad, right? Like they're giving in to temptation. 
um, they're the sinful thing, but you can learn to make the, um, let's say virtuous thing habitual. You can learn that if you practice the right way. And that's true of your phone, that's true of food, that's true of your work life. You can, you can, you can practice what you wanna make habitual and that, and then you also get to, if you do it early in the day, you get to save your decision juice for later. And then later in the day, when you're falling back on your habits, they're habits that you'd be proud of. So basically creating habits makes our brain have to work less and therefore it basically functions on autopilot. So then you don't have to make as many taxing decisions. You don't have to think about it. It doesn't have to use as much energy and you can choose which to, you can choose to the bad habits or the good habits. Like exactly. Okay. So, okay. Um, I've heard so many different things. I want to hear what you think of like how long it takes to uh, form a habit or change a habit. Yeah, there's no number. I know. Um, there's really not. Liars. People who say like 28 days or yeah. no, there's no number. Um, consistency is super important. To, oh, sorry. Go ahead. So consistency is super important. Yeah. Um, the reward schedule is really important and knowing what the habit is like you don't do most behaviors exactly once a day so habit is like what is the context i'm in and what's the action i want to produce in that context we were talking before about building a habit of checking in with your hunger um after you get in the car but before you start the engine right so that's the context and then the habit is checking in with my body and you can get into your car and not start it and you before you start it multiple times a day and if you don't practice it every time you're in the context the habit is going to take a lot longer to form so that's what i mean by consistency it's not doing it every day it's doing it every time you're in context mm. uh the strength of the alternatives is really important so how strong is the established habit and are you trying to add to an established habit or replace? Replacing is harder, adding is easier. Um, adding would be like, before I brush my teeth, I yes. like brush my hair. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> after like, I walk in the bathroom, but before I brush my teeth, yeah, I'm gonna yeah. slide this one in there. That's way easier than replacing. What do you think is the best way for people to remind themselves of the habit that they're trying to create? Leaving a out of context clue in the context if possible. So if it's like a physical context, you know, we use reminders on our phone, which can be helpful if it's like a time-based context. Yeah. If it's a location-based context, placing something that's out of context there, which mm -hmm. will like kind of snap you out of your normal hab habitual routine and remind you that you have something else you want to do so that would um, be kind of like putting your gym clothes on the floor that is like putting your gym clothes on the floor or yeah. putting your hairbrush in your sink so like you can't start brushing your teeth until you move the hairbrush out of the sink yeah okay um do you think that a lot of i mean i'm i'm like thinking running here but do you think a lot of a lot of things are kind of like preparing the day it's kind of preparing to you have to prepare to create the new habit like 
yeah so the coaches are helpful for that um but yeah you need to and then that itself needs to be a practice right like doing your sunday night plan for the week is like another practice um that you need to pick up where can people learn more about you so people the best place to learn more about me and temper is to go to usetemper.com u-s-e-t-e-m-p-e-r.com you can also find us on every platform we are at use temper, TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, whatever your poison is, we're there. Uh, and if you'd like to read the book, uh, just Google digital behavioral design book is probably the best way to find it. Cool. I will link those. Awesome. Okay. It's been great, Megan. Yeah. Thank you for your time. Yeah. Talk more soon. Day. Yeah. All right. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. If you want to learn more about Temper and Dalton, please check out the show notes. There's links to everything in there and we will see you next week and help you master your energy. Bye for now.